it's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Starting off a brand new week, Monday, June 29th, 2009. Only one day away from the first year anniversary of Pirate Christian Radio. Man, that year went quick. That's the thing. You know, as you get older, it seems like uh, the years just kind of go faster. Every time you go, you do a lap around the uh, the sun, it seems like the, the next lap just goes quicker. You know what I mean? Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and compare what people are saying in the name of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of the Bible, whatever, spirituality, whatever they want to call it. And we compare that to what Scripture says, to what the Bible says. Why? Because the Bible's God's Word. Don't believe me? You don't have to believe me. Take Jesus Christ's Word for it, because He's the one who has the high view of Scripture, and He's the one that raised himself from the dead three days after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. So, as far as I'm concerned, as the spiritual credentials go, uh, Jesus, he's got him, and nobody else even comes close. So, if you have a problem with what the Bible says, you don't want to believe what the Bible says, take it up with Jesus Christ. When you you, you can get some better credentials than he does, uh, then I might listen to you. But but the job of the Christian church is not to be creative, it, it, the, the job of the Christian church is to be faithful to the preaching and proclamation of the good news uh, that Christ died for your sins. That's right. You, you listener out there, good news, Christ died for you. So we're launching into a brand new week here, and uh, I've been doing a ton of researching, writing, <laughs> reading Oh, my brain hurts, and uh, it was, oh man, I, I, I've been watching documentaries, I've been reading books, I've been writing like it's, there's no tomorrow. It's it, hopefully we'll have something to to show for all of this time that we spent doing this. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, like I said, tomorrow, uh, June 30th, is our one year anniversary for Pirate Christian Radio. We've been on the air for one year. And uh tell you, that's been an extremely neat uh, project to be a part of. And uh, in, in what we're doing with Pirate Christian Radio, putting together good, theological, uh, Christ-centered, cross-focused radio programming that understands the difference between the law and the gospel and understands that the good news is really good news. It's so good. It's such good news that you don't have to do anything to earn your salvation. Not one thing. Not one thing. Christ died for you. And so repentance and the forgiveness of sins and faith in Jesus Christ is a gift. And uh, so anyway. All right. Let's see. Looking at today's program docket, dossier, if you would. Uh, that, I just like using that word. I have no idea if I used it properly in this particular context. Um, we, we've got another new Marty Python's Flying Circus Church that we're going to be uh, introducing today, and the name of it is Bible Thirst. It, it, the best way I could describe it is, is this is an example of uh, Christian marketing run amok, and we decided to make fun of it because uh, Christians nowadays have become so clever at marketing. And uh, and so we kind of lampoon that a little bit. So the name of it is Bible Thirst. It's uh, promoting it. Uh, well, you'll hear it very shortly here. 
Uh, let's see. Uh, we, we're going to be looking at a new story. Does God rejoice over abortions? Well, there's an Episcopal priestess, Pastrix? Well, who, well, you'll have to hear it for yourself. She claims that God does. And then we got a news story coming out of the UK uh, from the Telegraph in the UK. The headline reads, Britain is no longer a Christian nation. Uh, again, last time I checked, Jesus Christ was not the king of England. Um, but we'll see what, I think what they probably mean is the majority of people within Great Britain are no longer practicing Christians. That would probably be what they're talking about here. Um, let's see. And then jumping jihad, Rick Warren is going to be the keynote speaker at the Islamic Society of North America's annual convention this coming weekend. And I'm going to be reading to you a commentary that um, that I found a link to today from the uh, Canadian Free Press, written by Dr. Paul Williams. And we're going to have to exercise what I would consider double discernment here. Uh, dis- remember, discernment is one of these things that cuts both ways. And what I mean by that is, is that when you're being discerning, you're comparing pe- what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God and checking people's facts out as part of what goes on. And uh, Dr. Paul Williams, in his article entitled Jumping Jihad, Reverend Warren Goes Wahhabi, um, I'm having a hard time tracking down and confirming some of the alleged facts that Dr. Dr. Paul Williams has put forth in his article. Now, I'm not saying that, that he's that he's lying. I'm just saying I can't find it using some of the best search tools on the internet. And, uh, and so I, I, well, (laughs) this is one of those things where, you know, you gotta be careful because when you're exercising discernment, you don't want to, you don't want to use bogus evidence to state your case. And you, you, you need to provide readily accessible uh, information regarding uh, people. So uh, we're going to have to exercise double discernment when it comes to this particular story, specifically due to the fact that, um, you know, I've got a question as to why Rick Warren is speaking at this Islamic uh, Society of North America convention. And, you know, he did that. He spoke to an Islamic group back uh, late last year. We played the audio from it and, He's not going to go there to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. I'm convinced he's going to go there to talk about completely nothing and talk about himself. My wager is on the table right now. And in fact, uh, you know, if anyone wants to take me up on this, okay, <laughs> be warned. And I'm not, I'm not one normally given to gambling, and I'm not a prophet in the sense that I'm not capable of predicting the future. I have no great skill at predicting the future. But uh, let's just say this. As somebody who has watched, observed, researched, uh, listened to and read just about everything Rick Warren has put out there over the past, you know, five, ten years, um, I would say that it is a safe bet. In fact, I'll put ten dollars on the table. Ten whole dollars, that's right. Um, cause I don't have a lot of money, um, <laughs> that Rick Warren is going to spend a large portion of his speech talking to these Muslims and he's going to talk about himself. Just, just a wager on the table. Any, if anyone wants to, 
to take up that wager, you know, and say, no, no, he's not going to talk about himself. He's going to talk about Jesus Christ. He's going to talk about how Islam is a false religion and that all these Muslims need to repent and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation and receive from him the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, please, you know, I, I got $10 on the table on this and, you know, and I have the ability here to <clears throat> to make an extra 10 bucks. <laughs> So anyway, we're we're going to get to that later today. Well, actually, later this hour, and then for our sermon review, you know, last week, in a moment of transparency, if you would, I divulged that one of my favorite things. I've talked about this very little on the program. One of my favorite sports is golf. I I really really enjoy the game. My father taught me how to play when I was a young lad, and I've really taken to it fondly. Now, my father taught me to play when I was a young lad, and then I really didn't play again until I was an adult. Picked up the sport maybe about 10 years ago now, and um, I carry a a handicap. My handicap is 14.5. So for those of you out there, you know, who understand what a USGA handicap index is, I carry a 14.5, which means I basically normally shoot in the mid eighties. And, um, you know, it's been a sport that, um, well, for the past few years, I haven't really had the time or really the, uh, the, the, really not the time to participate in. And since moving to Indiana, I've discovered that, that, uh, golf in Indiana is ridiculously inexpensive. <laughs> and, you know, to the point where, uh, I can practice again, but then again, you know, when pra- me practicing golf, I'm really cheap. I buy wiffle golf balls and I, I practice with wiffle golf balls because I don't like spending like five, six bucks for a bucket of balls. Cause once you hit them, they're gone, you know? So I have these nice little orange wiffle golf balls and I practice at the, uh, at the golf course, not too far from my home. And just really enjoy the game. And so all of that to basically say that today's sermon is a gratuitous sermon on my part because of my sensitivity to and love of the game of golf. That being said, we're going to be listening to a sermon that uses golf metaphors and it's called What's in Your Bag? And uh, this is a, there was a three-part sermon that we're going to pick the first uh, this sermon series. We're going to pick the first of the sermon series called The Fundamentals. And I picked this one because this pastor, this purpose-driven pastor, really, really, really badly whiffs it, uh, golf pun intended, um, regarding how to understand the purpose of the law and uh, the gospel. So... Um, yeah, well, of course, you know, when I do my sermon reviews, I always use that as a springboard to actually teaching sound biblical doctrine. And so today's, uh, sermon on the fundamentals on what's in your bag, the golf metaphor will give us an opportunity to once again, examine the fundamentals of the Christian faith, if you would. So, uh, lots to do on today's program. You definitely want to make yourself comfortable, go grab a beverage, uh, and uh, again, too warm for fuzzy bunny slippers. Although we, the mugginess in Indiana has left for a couple of days, we're getting a nice cool breeze coming in out of the north, and uh, so it's not muggy here at the moment. And it, in fact, it's in the low 80s, windy, breezy outside, sunny. You couldn't ask for perfect, wet, more perfect weather for either golf or just sitting out on your porch, enjoying a mint julep while listening to fighting. 
for the faith. All right. So with that in mind, we're going to move along here. It's time now for the uh, the second new uh, installment uh, of Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. While my son was uh, visiting us while he was on leave from the Navy for a couple of weeks, we had the opportunity to record some editions of Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. And so we're, we're going to have another world pre, uh, premiere here of a Marty F- Python's Flying Circus Church. This one's entitled Bible Thirst. And I, I think you'll kind of get the idea of uh, Christian marketing run amok. Here we go. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Hey, you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst. Holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm. You're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. Ah. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no! And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You have so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning, Chester. You have so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies and they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they'll get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy they'll make you uh, holy. Uh. <laughs> what was that? I'm going to have to send that boy an email. Okay. <laughs> that was weird. Okay, so that's our latest addition to the Marty Python's Flying Circus Church lineup. Okay. Oh, man. I, I, I don't even want to comment on it. That just was bizarre. But the funny thing is, is that listening to the radio out here in Indiana, I've heard commercials on the on the radio that are like that. It's what? Is, uh, well, anyway. All right, moving along. From the Christian Telegraph... Headline reads, God rejoices over abortions, says Episcopal Priestess. Yeah, that's right. The headline reads, God rejoices over abortions, says Episcopal Priestess. Priestess. Pastrix, well, yeah. By the way, um, how many of Jesus' 12 disciples uh, were women? Give up? Zero. All right, moving along. Okay, we continue. The Episcopal Church has to clarify God's official official position on abortion. At least so says a priestess of the church who claims that a proposed right for post-abortive women conflicts with the church theology and and that the deity rejoices when women elect to abort their children, reports Peter J. Smith of LifeSiteNews.com. The Reverend Nina Churchman, you know what's funny? Her last name is so ironic. Um, The Reverend Nina Churchman, 
wrote a letter to Episcopal Life Online expressing her outrage upon learning that her church has developed a healing rite for post-abortive women sorrowful over their abortion that seems to have language alluding to sin and guilt. Churchman said she was, quote, sickened to discover that the right for abortion is couched wholly in terms of sin and transgression. Uh, Ms. Churchman, what an ironic name. Ms. Churchman, here's the deal. It's real simple. It, 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 it uh, have you ever heard of the, uh, the Ten Commandments? There, one of the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not kill. The, the Hebrew word there really is, thou shalt not murder. And so, um, the, talking about abortion in terms of sin and sorrow and guilt makes a lot of sense biblically. Mm-hmm. Because you got to understand, Ms. Churchman, that um, the church, the Christian church, is really supposed to be um, subject to the authority of the Bible, of God's Word. Uh, of course, you wouldn't understand that because you're rebelling against God's word. And uh, even by being a, quote, priestess in the Christian church, you are rebelling against God's word. So I understand you're not – you don't really maintain a high view of scripture whatsoever. Um, and so you know, for you, that being the case, it completely just boggles your mind and, and you, you miss the whole point. And that you're not really familiar with this concept of thou shalt not murder being applied to – you know, unborn human beings. <clears throat> we continue. Let's see here. Um, the priestess also took particular umbrage uh, with the words, I seek God's forgiveness. And the words, God rejoices that you have come seeking God's merciful forgiveness. The, these are words, uh, this is language in this rite of for post-abortive women. The, quote, the Episcopal Church, by resolution, has long held that women have the freedom to choose an abortion, asserted church man. It is not considered a sin. Well, see, that's the thing, um, uh, Ms. Churchman. Um, the Episcopal Church doesn't have the right to decide what's a sin and what isn't a sin. It's God and God alone who decides what is sinful and what is not, what is lawful and what is not. And again, just going back to that, you know, that really ancient document that came down from Mount Sinai on stone, uh, the Ten Commandments, uh, thou shalt not murder being one of the original ten, if you would, uh, makes it very clear that killing is a sin for which we should feel sorrow and guilt and... Um, seek and ask for and beg and plead for God's forgiveness and mercy. Because he, the good news is, is that we have a loving and merciful God, in, especially in Jesus Christ. He died for even the sin of abortion. And those women who have committed this sin, 
whatever their reasoning was, whether it was they didn't want their lives inconvenienced, they rationalized it and said that they weren't ready, uh, they didn't want to have that problem in their life, or maybe they 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 decided that you know they they found out information that you know maybe their child had some congenital disease or a, a, a defect, and they didn't want to bring a child into the world with you know and have to deal with all of that, and so they you know whatever their rationale was. Uh, yet, you know, it's funny, so many women, especially women I've talked with who've had abortions, um, express deep sorrow and regret for that, uh, for m- murdering their unborn child. It's It's not only unnatural, it's against God's law. And Christ died even for that sin. And women who come to Jesus who come to a pastor and confess the sin seeking God's mercy the pastor's job is to tell them that they that Christ died even for this sin and that God is merciful and just and will forgive them of their sins even this sin Christ even died for abortion now i understand miss churchman that um you're you're having a hard time understanding why this uh, this post-abortive right would contain such language, which, by the way, is biblical, since it seems to contradict the Episcopal Church's, quote, resolutions. Well, see, that's the thing. No church can, by resolution or decree or vote, decide which things are not sins. Uh, we continue. The Episcopal Church, uh, long-held, the Episcopal Church's long-held position permitting abortion dates back to 1967 when the church began to lobby for abortion in limited cases such as rape, incest, fetal deformity, uh, health of the mother, etc., which by 1994 had become a full-blown defense of a right to an abortion. The church's previous position on abortion had lasted much longer. As late as 1958, the church had expressed an unequivocal defense over the 1900 years of Christian tradition against abortion, stating abortion was infanticide and is to be condemned. Quote, women should be able to mourn the loss of an aborted fetus without having to confess anything, declared churchmen. Really? <clears throat> Yeah, Ms. Churchman, have you had an abortion? I'm just wondering because your conscience seems to be seared, if you know what I mean. You, We continue. Quote, God, unlike what the liturgy states, also rejoices that women facing unplanned pregnancies have the freedom to carefully choose the best option, birth adoption, or abortion for themselves and their families. Now, I'm going to read the sentence again and see if you can detect the problem. Ms. Churchman declared, quote, God, unlike what the liturgy states, also rejoices that women facing unplanned pregnancies have the freedom to carefully choose the best option. Okay, now, I'm going to stop here for a second. Ms. Churchman, the reverend churchman, who rejects God's word by her mere presence in front of a pulpit under the pretense that she's supposedly an ordained minister, states that God rejoices that women facing unplanned pregnancies have the freedom to carefully choose the best option. So, Ms. Churchman, I... 
just would like to know where you get this information from. Did God tell you that he rejoices that women have the freedom to carefully choose the best option? Did you have a vision like, you know, Elijah? Did you ascend to the highest heaven, to the third heaven like Paul? Did you uh, did God appear Jesus appear at the foot of your bed one night and let you know that God, quote, rejoices when women have the freedom to choose the best option for an unplanned pregnancy? See, on the one hand, you reject God's word. Yet, on the other hand, you claim to be speaking for God, and you have said that God rejoices when women facing unplanned pregnancies have the freedom to carefully choose the best option, birth, adoption, or abortion for themselves and their families. Yet I find not, not a word of scripture to that effect. So who am I to believe? You, Miss Churchman, a woman who claims to be a pastor? Yet scripture forbids such a thing. Or do I believe God's word, which makes it clear that murder is a sin? Doesn't matter how small the human being is. Nowhere in scripture does it teach that a woman has a right to murder a child in her womb. Instead, it teaches that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and that God is the one who knits us together in our in our mother's wombs. Interesting. Okay, let's see here. Let me continue on. Um, she continues. Um, the wording of the liturgy focuses solely on guilt and sin instead of the grief and healing that may accompany a very difficult but appropriate decision to terminate a pregnancy, said Churchman. Instead, Churchman expressed her determination that the church should reject the right at the next general convention and do away with the references to sin and guilt. Uh, the proposed post-abortion healing service had been the idea of Georgette Forney, a president of Anglicans for Life, who had obtained an abortion when she was 16. Forney had asked the church to, had asked the church to create a healing service for women like herself seeking healing, and the Episcopal General Convention had approved the development of the project. The result was a right addressing the pastoral needs of women and men and who had experienced miscarriage, abortion, or other trauma in the childbearing or childbirth process in a book called Rachel's Tears, Hannah's Hopes, Liturgies and Prayers for Healings from the Loss Related to Childbearing and Childbirth. The 2009 General Convention of the Episcopal Church will consider and vote on the right when it convenes uh, July 8th through the 17th in Anaheim, California. How much do you guys want to wager? <laughs> I really should get off this wagering thing. Uh, how much do you want to wager that uh, the Episcopal Church, now that the uh, the conservative uh, the elements, the pastors, have left the uh, Episcopal Church USA, uh, that they're going to end up uh, striking down this right that talks about abortion in in as regards to sin and guilt and need for God's mercy. 
But then again, apparently, you know, God is speaking to Miss Churchman because she has inside information that God apparently is very happy and, and rejoices when women have the, the, these appropriate options. You know, one of them being the uh, option to terminate, to kill, to murder their unborn child. Oh, sad. You know, to tell you, the church could not be in more open rebellion to God and his word if they tried. It's just, it's outrageous what is happening nowadays in the name of God. All right, we are up on our first break. When we come back, we're going to uh, take a look at this article from the uh, Telegraph in the UK. Britain is no longer a Christian nation. And then we've got uh, this, we're going to have to exercise double uh, double discernment here. Uh, from the Can- uh, Canadian Free Press, the uh, Dr. Paul Paul L. Williams um, article regarding uh, Rick Warren's appearance uh, this coming weekend at the Islamic Society of North America's annual convention. So you definitely are not going to want to miss that. And then our sermon review, like I said, in hour number two, uh, we're going to be looking at a golf sermon. What's in your bag? <laughs> or, oh boy, we're going to find out. All right. Uh, if you'd like to email me, you can. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or look me up on Facebook or you can uh, follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian and I send out subversive microblogging tweets on a fairly regular basis. You don't want to miss them. We'll be right back. Itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to the first emergent bank of postmodernism. How can I be of service to you today, ma'am? Ever since you people changed your name to the first emergent bank of postmodernism, I haven't been able to figure out what the correct balance is in my account. Every time I log into your website, I can't even figure out very basic information like what checks have cleared or whether my deposits have been credited to my account. It's like everything is shrouded in a mysterious haze. Oh, I see. So you're here because you'd like to have a conversation about this. No. I'd just like to know the current balance of my checking account, please, because my rent is due tomorrow. <clears throat> well, let me pull that information up for you. Ah, uh, yes. <clears throat> I see. That is very intriguing. What's intriguing? Is there something wrong? Am I overdrawn? What is my balance, please? Uh, well, ma'am, it appears that your balance may or may not be what you think it should be. What's that supposed to mean? Just look on the computer screen and tell me the number where it says account balance. Well, ma'am, I would never be so arrogant as to presume that I could actually know with any degree of certainty what the balance of your account is. What, what does arrogance have to do with telling me my bank account balance? 
Just read me the number. Well, you see, that's just it. Uh, a specific number is so final, so narrow, so limiting. This idea that your bank balance is merely a fixed and limited numerical truth is just an artifact from the modern society. Well, we've moved on beyond modernism, and we're now experiencing the liberation and the freedom of postmodern ways of interpreting the truth. Are you out of your mind? Well, don't you see? It's not the number that is so important. That is merely a cold and detached way of understanding truth. To say that any of us can know what truth is is nothing more than pure arrogance on our part. Who are we to say that we can know truth? We feel it's more important to humbly approach the question of account balances by having community conversations about whether or not you earn the money in your bank account in a way that doesn't support the theo-capitalist suicide machine. It's more important to ask you to think about what is the best use of this money in your account rather than just give you a fixed figure. This conversation is pointless. Look, right here, according to my calculations, I should have $2,356 in my checking account. Well, is it in there or not? You may or may not be correct in your assertion. Um, some people who are sensitive to these sorts of limiting ideas may or may not agree with your calculations, while others who may or may not be smarter than me may believe that your calculations regarding your bank balance are overly influenced by a male-dominated Western culture. That's it. I'm closing my account. You give me my $2,356 right now. That was a disgusting display of pride and arrogance. <laughs> Keep that up and I will have to call the manager and have you thrown out of here. Great idea. You call your manager because I want to close my account right now. Well, <clears throat> I would call my manager, but I'm not certain that she's even here. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today.
right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. On the eve of our first anniversary, Pirate Christian Radio. All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Yeah, that's right, it's listener-supported. Which means if uh, you're growing and learning and uh, and really getting something from this bizarre little podcast that we do, or broadcast that we do on a regular basis here, uh, then we need your help. We need your help to pay our bills, to pay our salary, to uh, basically continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And you can support us a couple of ways. You can visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, which, by the way, is the home of our archives if you want to go back and listen to all of our previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. And uh, go to fightingforthefaith.com, click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. It allows you to uh, make your gift available instantly online using a secure credit card processing, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, from the Telegraph in the U.K., Britain is no longer a Christian nation. That's what the headline reads. That's right. Uh, Britain is no longer a Christian nation. Now, with a headline like that, again, last time I checked, now I happen to have studied uh, British history. My minor uh, from my uh, bachelor's degree is in history, and I took uh, a couple of quarters of uh, British history, uh, European history, all of that. so I'm, I'm a student of history. In all of my studies of British history, I am not aware of a single time period whereby Jesus Christ was the king. Now, let me say this, though. I can recall a time in British history where before the Reformation, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, let's say, wielded a lot of power regarding uh, who could ascend to a particular throne in Europe, including uh, Great Britain. And I remember this little rough-and-tumble exchange that occurred between Henry, I think, Henry VIII and uh, and the Pope. Things didn't go so well. <laughs> and, uh, and so you had the Church of England splitting off from... Um, the Roman Catholic Church, just, it's just something I, I I recall that's you know a little bit shrouded in a, in a mysterious haze somewhere in my mind, a haze getting thicker as I grow older. But even then, I don't ever recall Jesus Christ himself being sitting on the throne of uh, Great Britain. And that's how I would define a, quote, Christian nation. Now, I'm aware that the way they're using the parlance here probably is referring to the fact that Great Britain has this long tradition whereby the majority of uh, of its citizens have been those who have practiced the Christian faith. But Great Britain's history is by no means a uniform Christian history in the sense that uh, there have been Jews who've been citizens of Great Britain, Muslims and members of different and various re- world religions and cults that have also been British citizens. You know, so I, I would define a Christian nation as one where Jesus Christ is king. 
Now, let's read the story now. That This is by the Right Reverend Paul Richardson, who's writing for The Telegraph in the UK. Um, if recent tens, uh, trends are any guide, many Christ, uh, Church of England parishes will have been uh, cheered by higher attendance at Easter services. The last published uh, statistics for 2006-2007 show rises of 7 and 5% in church going at Christmas and Easter. Okay, uh, but these figures are just about the only signs of hope for the church and certainly not the first uh, green shoots of a revival other statistics make for gloomy reading. So, uh, by the way, um, we, I, we, we lovingly refer to the people who show up at church only on Christmas and Easter as the seasonees. That's right. They are, you know, these are se- seasonees. These are people who have, have some sense in which they may be grown up in the Christian church. And uh, for whatever reason, you know, can only make it to church on Christmas and Easter. Yeah. Anyway, so the annual decline in Sunday attendance is running about 1%. And at this rate, it's hard to see the church surviving for more than 30 years, though few of its leaders are prepared to face that possibility. So apparently the the right Reverend Paul Richardson, uh, who's writing for The Telegraph in the U.K., is basically saying at the rate things are going that the Church of England has less than 30 years to survive? Hmm, maybe if the Church of England would, uh, um, you know, stop with the uh, U2, uh, the U- Eucharists and the stupid ways of trying to reach out to youth by being silly and stupid, and instead did what Christ told them to do, uh, go out into all the world, all nations and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus name. Maybe just maybe, uh, you know, God, the Holy spirit would do what God, the Holy spirit does when the gospels preach. And that is regenerate people and convert them from pagans to Christians. It's been done before in the British Isles. Um, just something I've heard about. Um, in the short term, we are, we are likely to see more closures of buildings as the church battles to meet a big pension bill, pay clergy, and maintain a large bureaucracy. Maintain a large bureaucracy. Yeah, well, maybe, you know, listen, I, I've, I was never a big fan of, of the United States government taking over, if you would, General Motors. Um, I kind of liken that to what we've seen in, in Marxist nations when uh, certain particular companies were, quote, nationalized. Um, you know, I think the right thing to have uh, would have been to allow General Motors to actually just go out of business, you know, go bankrupt. Uh, if the uh, Church of England is facing uh, extinction within the, the next 30 years and they're concerned because, you know, they got pensions to play, pay and, uh, and, and they've got a large bureaucracy that they need to maintain, maybe it's, it's best that the, quote, Church of England dies. I mean, look, the Church of Jesus Christ isn't going to die. Christ says that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and Christians are going to be on the earth. The church is going to be here when he returns. So the church of Jesus Christ isn't dependent upon big pensions and large bureaucracies, you know, or maintaining any of these particular human structures. 
maybe the best thing for the gospel in Great Britain is for it to be completely detached from this organization that is obviously antiquated and on its way out in the sense that it has become a toxic culture and it's more concerned about maintaining its large bureaucracy. To its credit, the church has been successful at getting members to give, but larger donations cannot offset the fall in numbers. At present, the church is struggling to maintain 16,200 buildings, many of them old and listed with 4,200 listed grade one. If decline continues, Christian research has estimated that in five years' time, church closures will accelerate from their present rate of 30 a year to 200 a year as dwindling congregations find the cost of keeping them open too great. <clears throat> Have you guys ever heard of the Great Commission? I mean, yeah, oh man, yeah. evangelism, you know, you go out, preach repentance, forgiveness of sins. Anyway, perhaps the most worrying set of statistics for the Church of England is the decline in baptisms out of every 1,000 live births in England uh, in 2006, uh, 2007, only 128 were baptized as Anglicans. Uh, the f- uh, figure rises by a small amount of adult baptisms and Thanksgiving services are included, but it's hard to see the Church of England being able to justify its position as the established church on the basis of these numbers. By way of contrast, out of every 1,000 live births in England in 1900, 609 were baptized in the Church of England, figures uh, for church marriages show an equally catastrophic decline. The church is being hit by a double whammy. On the one hand, it confronts the challenge of institutional decline, but on the other hand, it, it has to face the rise of cultural and religious pluralism in Britain. Why? Okay. <clears throat> religious pluralism. Has Christianity never, ever faced religious pluralism before? Is this an unknown foe, an unknown competitor to Christianity in the marketplace of ideas? Uh, No. Religious pluralism has been something that the true Christian church has been fighting for millennia. And in this case, I'm defining the true Christian church as extending into the Old Testament period. Because salvation is by grace alone, by faith, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for everybody of every era. People in the Old Testament were looking forward to the the promises being fulfilled regarding the Messiah. We look backwards in time to the fulfilled promises of the Messiah, knowing that God is the one who has uh, literally, in Jesus Christ, reconciled the world to himself and taken our sins upon him on the cross, was punished in our place. People in the Old Testament were looking forward to it. We look back on it, okay? That being the case, religious pluralism is something that, uh, let's just say that if you go back in church history to, uh, you know, the post-exile period when uh, the time of the judges and the time of, of the kings in Israel's history, religious pluralism was run amok. Things didn't go so well during that time. And somehow the church survived. Okay? Uh, we faced this religious pluralism before, if you would. In fact, think of the uh, the pantheon of gods worshipped by the uh, 
the Romans and the Greeks when Christianity set out, you know, in, in its launch to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name after Jesus ascended into heaven, right? What did they do? They went everywhere they could to go and proclaim the gospel. And what happened? Well, the gates of hell didn't prevail against the church because gates are defensive weapons. Uh, instead, what happened is is that God, through the preaching of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, God gave faith, converted people, and made them into Christians. If the Church of England is so worried about their decline, so worried about uh, their inability to feed their hungry bureaucracy, maybe they should consider the one proven, time-tested way of growing a church. Regardless of whether or not they're facing pluralism, atheism, whatever the ism is of the day, you know, Islam, whatever. Uh, they should go out, get out of their little churches, even if they're old, even if they're small, and go and proclaim salvation in Jesus Christ alone and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And see if God the Holy Spirit is not capable of uh, growing their churches. <sighs> let's see here. Let's, con let's continue. Um, so at present, the church leaders show little signs of understanding the situation. They don't understand the culture we now live in. Who cares about what culture you live in? Preach the gospel. Many bishops re uh, prefer to turn their heads to carry on as if nothing has changed rather than face the reality that Britain is no longer a Christian nation. Many of them think we are still living in the 1950s, a period described by historians as representing a heyday for the established church. The coronation brought the church and the nation together in a way which will never be repeated. School assemblies had a definite Christian tone and children sang familiar hymns. The church could function as a, as chaplain to a nation that was nominally Christian and Anglican, even if they actually only attended for baptisms, weddings, and funerals. For the world has gone for good. That world has gone for good. Gordon Brown's uh, unilateral decision to take no part in nominating bishops to the Queen, a matter he did not discuss with David Cameron or Nick Clegg in breach of constitutional protocol, makes it less likely that bishops will retain their place in a reformed house of lords. Again, maybe it's the best thing for the Church of England to become completely disentangled uh, from the British government. Since when does the, G the Church of Jesus Christ need the house of lords or the uh, reigning queen of England? Uh, rather than to try to cling to their places in the House of Lords, they should take the initiative by withdrawing, which would show that they appreciate Christian Britain is dead. The church can try to fight the forces of change or it can see the crisis as an opportunity to give itself a clearer sense of identity. Uh, one reason for increased attendance at Christmas and Easter may be that people are looking for a way of affirming identity in a pluralistic... In a pluralistic oh, boy. Anyway, I think you got the point here. Our prayers go out to the Church of England, and my prayer is, is that they completely get disentangled from the British government and get back to doing what we're called to do, proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. 
And uh, those clergymen who are nominally Christian and those people out there who are nominally Christian, they can have their little, you know, little cute little quaint churches, but some somewhere people need to stand up for and do the polemical work. I know, I know that the British culture is not really one that embraces polemics, but it's got to be done. All right. Um, now this next one's from the Canadian free press and this, we're probably going to end up starting this and then getting, uh, finishing on the other side of the break. Um, the name of the article is called Jumping Jihad, uh, Reverend Warren Goes Wahhabi. Not wasabi, by the way. Um, that's wahhabi. Uh, wasabi is that green paste that's really, really, um, let's just say burns your face off and clears your sinuses out if you eat sushi. So we're not talking about wasabi. It's, it's wahhabi. It has something to do with Islam. This is an article written by Dr. Paul Williams. And this is one of those ones where we have to exercise what I would call double discernment. Let me read. Um, this is what Dr. Paul Williams writes. He says, The Islamic Society of North America, ISNA, an organization with ties to Hamas and other terrorist groups, will hold its annual convention, the largest yearly gathering of Muslims on the continent in Washington, D.C. over the 4th of July weekend. Now, I've got to stop right here. <clears throat> okay, Now, the, the, already we're, we're off to an interesting start here. Okay, according to Dr. Paul Williams, the Islamic Society of North America has ties with Hamas and other terrorist groups. That is a huge, huge, ginormous charge. Okay, if if it it plays out to be true, and I don't know at this point. This is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm reading this article here. Is because you have to you have to dis exercise discernment when you're reading things nowadays. Now, I, believe me, we've done a lot of uh, work on Rick Warren demonstrating his scripture twisting, how he preaches a gospel of works. Um, you know, even though he claim he affirms salvation by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, yet when he preaches, he twists God's word, and it sounds like you have to earn your salvation. Interesting stuff we've documented here at Fighting for the Faith regarding the Rick Warren. And I am one of Rick Warren's most outspoken critics, okay? But at this point, I'm asking the question, is it true? Is it factual reality that the Islamic Society of North America has undeniable ties with Hamas and other terrorist groups? If that is, if this turns out to be true, and I don't know yet, then Rick Warren has some major splaining to do. Splaining be in the uh, the term used by Ricky Ricardo on "I Love Lucy." Lucy, you have some splaining to do. We continue. The keynote speaker will be the Reverend Rick Rick Warren, founder and senior minister of the Saddleback Church an evangelical megachurch located in Lake Forest, California. Reverend Warren has become one of America's most leading Christian leaders. Over 400,000 pastors, actually it's over half a million pastors, attend his purpose-driven church seminars and his books, including The Purpose-Driven Life, have become international bestsellers. Why did Reverend Warren commit to appear at such a controversial gathering? 
the nation's leading Protestant evangelist. Oh, man. <clears throat> excuse me. He can't be called an evangelist if he doesn't preach the gospel. Sorry. Um, was unavailable for comment, but his scheduled visit at the convention follows ISNA leader Saeed Saeed's appearance at the Saddleback Church last December. Why is ISNA so controversial? Now, this is where it gets interesting. Uh, according to Paul Williams, he says the organization's website contains the following quotations. Quotation number one from the ISNA website, according to Paul Williams. Uh, the hour will be established until you fight with the Jews, and the stone behind which a Jew will be hiding will be will say, O oh Muslim, there is a Jew hiding behind me, so kill him. Okay. So according to Dr. Paul Williams, somewhere on the ISNA website, we have that quote. Now, here's the problem. Google has an advanced search feature, Okay, something that I use on a regular basis while doing research for my program prep here at Fighting for the Faith. And I put that quote into Google's advanced search feature to search specifically the ISNA website. It didn't return a single hit regarding that particular quote. So the question comes down to, if, if that's the case, then where did he get this quote? Google can't find it, and Google has a wonderful way of archiving uh, pages. So let's just say that, you know, maybe uh, Isna, after, the, after they were found out, took the quote down. Well, Google has a way of going into the archives, and you can pull that, that, that thing up for quite a while. It didn't even appear as a, a, that as an option. Here's another quote oh, that's supposedly on the Isna website. Quote, may Allah fight the Jews and the Christians. They took the graves of their prophets as places of prostration. Two deans, that's religions, shall not coexist in the land of the Arabs. Again, when I Googled it, using the advanced Google search feature, no hits whatsoever for the ISNA website. <sighs> Number three, quote, I will expel the Jews and the Christians from the Arabian Peninsula and will not leave any but Muslim. That's supposedly another quote on the ISNA website, but again, nothing there. Um, so here's the issue, okay? You don't fight fire with fire. You don't fight lies with lies. You don't fight, you don't fight for the truth using lies, Okay. So I emailed uh, Dr. Paul Williams and have asked him to supply me with the links to the pages on the ISNA website where these damning quotes appear. Now, I have not heard back from Dr. Uh, Paul Williams as of yet, and so I'm anxiously awaiting it. But see, uh, here's the deal. Okay, now, Rick Warren speaking at a Muslim event. Again, it's not any big news to me because he's done it before. And the last time he appeared at a Muslim event, who did he talk about? He didn't talk about Jesus Christ. He didn't call Muslims to repentance. He talked about himself and how he built this wonderful church called Saddleback. And basically, why do I think Rick Warren is going there? Because he thinks by him going and being his jovial self, his likable self, uh, that somehow he can build bridges of relationship with the Muslims and that it'll make a difference in the world. And who's he going to talk about? He ain't going to talk about Jesus. Ain't, it ain't going to happen. I've got $10 on the table that says he won't. Okay? He's going to talk about himself. Uh, ultimately, what does that mean? 
that means that his appearance will be viewed as foolishness by many people, rightly so. Uh, he will not, you know, he, the media might portray him as some bridge builder, but ultimately he's not building any bridges. If he's building bridges at all, they're made out of toothpicks. You know, it, it's just, it has absolutely no power to do nothing. What should Rick Warren be doing? If, if, if I were invited to uh, speak to a Muslim event, I probably would go. But you know what I would talk about? Jesus Christ. Him being the savior of the world, the only way of salvation, his crucifixion on the cross for the sin of idolatry that the Muslims are engaging in, in worshiping and serving a false god. Call them to repentance and offer them the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Will Rick Warren be doing that? Not on your life. No way, Jose. I got good money. Ten, ten whole dollars. Says that he will not be talking about that. And I'll tell you this. If he does, that's ten dollars. I'd be happy to, uh, <clears throat> to uh, easily. I'd be happy to part with it. I mean, if Rick Warren actually were to preach the gospel, proclaim Jesus Christ and forgiveness of sins, and call Muslims to repentance, I. I uh, We'd probably lead off the program with the sound bites. Anyway, all right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we're going to do our sermon review, a golf sermon. That's right, a gratuitous golf sermon because golf is probably my favorite sport. Actually, it is. Yes, I can watch golf on television and find it rather interesting. Love it, in fact. Um, Kenny Perry won this weekend, by the way. And just thought I'd let you know. All right, when we come back, we're going to do our golf sermon, so you don't want to miss that. If you'd like to email me, you can. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's all right. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today.
right. Hour number two, fighting for the faith, straight ahead. Now, those of you golfers out there who are wondering uh, about the equipment that I use, got to tell you, I could not be the I could not be more cheap when it comes to the equipment that I use for uh, my golf game. Uh, just want to let you know that I a few years ago, man, this is about five or six years ago. I took a class at Golfsmith and learned how to build my own clubs. I kid you not, the vast majority of the clubs in my bag, I think one, two, there's only four clubs in my bag. So 10 out of the 14 in my bag, uh, I built. So 10 out of the 14, I actually purchased the components and built them myself. Why? Because I cannot bring myself to spending a hundred and something bucks for a golf club. When I can buy perfectly good uh, equipment out there uh, in component form, but you know, so you you figure this way: a fully completed, uh, let's say, six iron from TaylorMade, uh, nice cavity back, you know, forgiving, you know, all that kind of stuff, low center of gravity, nice launch angle, the whole nine yards. Uh, A six iron, you know, if you were to purchase it individually, you know, brand name TaylorMade, it's like 125 to 150 bucks for the club. I can't do it. There's just no way. <laughs> so it, what I did is I went, I took a class. I took a class at Golfsmith and a grip costs four bucks. If you get a decent one, it could cost eight. Um, so between four and eight bucks for a grip, a shaft, a uh, steel shaft uh, for irons, you know, what? That, that's another three or four bucks, $5 maybe nowadays, depending on what you're getting. Uh, you know, graphite shafts, though those can those can run you some money between twenty five and thirty bucks. Club head, ten fifteen bucks. Kid you not? Kid you not? So uh, the irons, uh, the ten of uh, the ten clubs that I have of the uh, fourteen in my bag, uh, the only ones I haven't built. Uh, see, I didn't build my driver. Now that's the one thing I made an exception. I I did get an R seven driver from TaylorMade. Um, the I have a Cleveland hybrid. And I play Vokey wedges. The uh, title is Vokey. Those are the wedges that I play. So uh, the the other ten clubs in my bag don't didn't even cost as much as those four clubs that I've named. I mean, it, I kid you not. So uh, so how do I how do I make golf inexpensive? I build my own clubs, and I play with I I practice with wiffle balls, <laughs> and I have a, I have a shag bag that I go out and I I, I hit golf balls at a short range uh, facility over here and practice mostly practice my short game and then I use uh, wiffle balls for my long. Why? Because again, I enjoy the game, but I don't like spending that much money on it. But I, again, it's it's a fantastic game if you can actually get good enough to be able to enjoy it. It's like playing chess. It really is. It's like playing chess, except for you get to walk on the board. I mean, there's a lot of strategy that comes into play. It's just a fantastic and fascinating game. And all of that is to introduce our sermon for the day, for the ser- sermon review that we're going to be doing. So it's time for our sermon update music. From the good, the bad, the ugly, sermon review time. Today's sermon, by the way, 
is uh, from a church called uh, Capital City Christian Church. Uh, I'm sorry, Capital City Church. That's the name of it. Pastor there, he goes by the name of Pastor Shane. And he recently finished up... He's a golfer, by the way. So he's a fellow golfer. So he can't be that bad of a guy just may not be the best preacher um the name of the sermon is called what's in your bag <sighs> i kid you not it's the name sermon series three weeks he did on this called what's in your bag uh the first one is called the fundamentals the second is uh is uh, let's see using what you have and the third is called follow through All right, it's time to kill the music here. Thank you. <laughs> all right, so, all right, now listen. Being a golfer, you would think that I am one who would be in favor of pastors finally preaching a sermon that's relevant to me because, you know, I'm a golfer. I mean, you have to reach me on my level, right? So since I enjoy golf, I mean, I watch all of the major championships on Sunday afternoons at my house, if I'm home, and, and you know, many times I'll have I'll have whatever the current tournament that's being played on in the background while I'm doing other things, and, and I keep track of it. I do TiVo Golf Central uh, like four day, four four days a week, you know. So it, this guy should be talking to me on my level, man. This should be so relevant, right? <sighs> um, well, here's the problem, and this is what I want you to listen for. Law and gospel, okay? God's law is summarized with two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all being the operative word, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the commandments are summed up in those two. That is the Mosaic law in a nutshell. What, according to Scripture, is the purpose of the law? The primary purpose of the law is to show you your sinfulness, to show you that you are a wretched and depraved sinner in need of a Savior. Okay? The law is not the gospel. The gospel does not equate to love God and love neighbor. That's not the gospel. That's the law. The gospel is the is the proclamation of good news. The law isn't good news. The law is bad news for us human beings because we are all sinful by nature since the fall of Adam. Okay? When Adam fell, in Adam all sinned, all died. Okay, we need a new Adam. That is Jesus Christ. The good news is that Christ has kept the law perfectly for us. That is his active obedience and he was crucified in our place. He was punished in our place on the cross, and all of our debt that we owe God regarding our sin, any punishment that we have earned for our sin, Christ has taken care of that for us. And so by faith, there is this great exchange. By faith, not by obedience, but by faith, those who have faith and trust in Christ, Christ's perfect righteousness is given to them as if they're the ones who lived it, and... Uh, Christ uh, takes our sins on himself. So the, he basically, our, he, he's got our sin, we got his righteousness, and that basically comes about by faith. Not obedience, but by faith. Don't believe me? 
read Romans, read Galatians. Makes it real clear. We might have to get into some of that today, depending on how he handles God's word. So uh, with that in mind, uh, our sermon for the um, for today, well, let's see here. Where did I put it? Here it is. Uh, it's called The Fundamentals. It's by the Reverend Shane Hart, or Pastor Shane of Capital City Church. What's in your bag? And while I am using golf as the basis for our discussion over the next couple of Sundays, if you hate golf, don't worry. You're not going to be left out. Because I'm just using some lessons from golf and some illustrations from golf in order to make some points that are spiritual. Some things that God, I believe, is saying to us right now and that are definitely things God has told us and shown us in his word. Okay, I've got to pause there for a second. I want you to notice something else here, what he just did. He wants to talk about some things that God is definitely saying to us and talk about stuff that's in his word. Notice that there's the two there. Supposedly there's some direct revelation going on here. God's apparently speaking directly to them, and it's apart from God's word. Folks, listen, when you read your Bible, understand this is truly God's word, and you, I think you really do well. You do well as a Christian when you understand that this is not just a word that's out there written, but this was written specifically to you. Why? Because... In Christ, you are elected. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. In, in Christ, you know, all these things occur. So you are a child of God, and this word of God is written specifically to you. It's a sure and certain word to you. Uh, this idea that somehow you're supposed to, you know, that God is speaking to you outside of his word, you need to you need to rely less and less on that concept and rely more and more on his word and his word alone, sola scriptura. Okay? It's always really dangerous when people think that they're getting words from God outside of his word because we've kind of documented that here too. Uh, 999 times out of a thousand or nine thousand nine hundred and ninety nine times out of ten thousand it's um that god didn't say that uh, we continue but like any other sport like any other thing golf has fundamentals there are oh yes it do <laughs> and you would think golf would be an easier sport i mean for heaven's sake the b- ball is on the ground it's not even moving you know, it's just sitting there. All you got to do is hit it. There are certain things about it that you have to start with. If your fundamentals are bad, you're going to struggle with your game. Whether it is football, basketball, baseball, soccer, golf, whatever it is. If it's music, if it's art, if your fundamentals aren't rooted right, you're going to have problems. You might pull it off, but you're going to have problems. Um, if I can get really just kind of specific on a couple of things, Shaquille O'Neal can't make a free throw because he has terrible fundamentals. He does. I mean, you watch his shot. He has terrible fundamentals. Now, they've improved over the years, but they're still terrible. The reason why Tiger Woods is such a great golfer, can take eight months off of golf and come back and still win within one of his first couple of starts and make a serious run at a major is because he has flawless fundamentals. And in spite of the fact that he changes his swing from time to time, his fundamentals have always been sound. 
He's got a pure swing. And it starts with fundamentals. All right. Now, okay, so far so good in this sense. Okay, Christians understanding the fundamentals of the Christian faith, very, very important. So the question now is going to be, since this is a question, he's the sermon on the fundamentals using a, quote, golf metaphor. What are the fundamentals of the Christian faith? Let's see if he gets them right. Now, I do not have a pure swing. I wish I did. I do not. You and me both, buddy. You and me both. But I do know a few basics of the fundamental of golf. Some things that you must have right in order to get down. Now, again, if you don't like golf, believe me, I'm going to bring this all around. It's going to make sense to you in a few moments. Okay? I promise you. But in golf, some of the fundamentals are is where your feet are pointed, how your feet are positioned. You've got to have your feet right. You've got to have a strong base under you. I learned this in football. Legs are the most important muscle group in football. If you've got the, the muscles of your legs right and you can get a good foundation underneath you, you're going to not only survive but can excel in football. As a lineman, in order to take the hits of the linebackers and the other guys that are trying to get to the quarterback, you had to have a good foundation. Your feet had to be positioned right. You had to have a base underneath you. The same is true in golf. You've got to have a good base underneath you. You've got, to, you've got to have your feet positioned right. You've got to have things balanced. If you're off balance in golf, a lot like life, when you get out of balance, things don't quite go right. You've got to have good balance. And this is true in most every sport that I'm aware of, most every sport I know anything about. You've got to be balanced. And so you've got to have that good footing. You've got to have that sure footing. That's why golfers have their own special shoes. It's not just another way to spend money. But the shoes make a difference in golf. And the reason is, is because they got these little spiky things on the bottom of them. Grass gets slippery sometimes. And these help keep a strong foundation underneath. The fundamentals are important. The fundamentals of life matter. And it starts with a good foundation. All right, again, okay, I'm not disagreeing with him. He's absolutely right in his, at least in his setup so far, although I would have preferred if he had stayed in God's word and would be preaching the text directly. Um, but let, let's just roll with it for a minute here, talking about the fundamental fundamentals, having a sure foundation, okay? Um, you know, there's some good things that we can say to this effect, and um, and that is that Jesus Christ is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the foundation. He it's all about Christ and what Christ has done for us and for you. He is the foundation, right? Or we can talk about the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and we can talk about how the early church dedicated themselves to the teaching of the apostles. A good, good foundational concept. Is that where he's going to go with this? Well, let's find out. A good balanced perspective, a good balanced position, a good balanced thinking and looking and way of life. And then from the balance, there's other things that matter. Grip matters. Now, there's all kinds of thoughts to grip, but grip matters. You know, you're supposed to hold the, you're supposed to hold the club like this. 
I can't do that. I'll be honest. I have bad fundamentals in this one area. I hold my club in my palm like that for whatever reason. That's what works for me. But the right way is like that. I know that. Okay. Now, being a golfer, I know, he's being relevant to me. I know exactly what he's talking about. And those of you who are not golfers, you know, I think you're lost at this point. That's the problem with uh, preaching in a way that you think is relevant is, is that if you're not – if people aren't part of your target audience, you might be losing them. Uh, don't you think that uh, Pastor Shane talking about uh, a golf grip at this point uh, runs the risk of, quote, losing your audience and you slipping into irrelevance? Just a thought. Now, some of you are looking. I don't see a difference. That's okay. Don't worry about it. But there is a difference. The grip matters. Where you position your hand. If you position your hand way around like this, one thing's going to happen to the ball. If you position your hand way around like this, another thing's going to happen to the ball. If you have it nice and centered and balanced, you're going to have a much better thing that's going to happen. Yeah, this is, see, this is a danger here. When you bring your personal hobbies to the pulpit, um... much better result. And I'm going to talk more about the result and those kinds of things later, but the fundamentals matter. They absolutely matter in golf, in sports, but more importantly, the fundamentals matter in life. When it comes to our spiritual walk with God, when it comes to our life, our spiritual journey, when it comes to every aspect of our life, the fundamentals matter. They're important. We have to get those right. We have to have an understanding of... Okay, I'm going to stop. I agree with the point that he's making. Christians must have the fundamentals right. If you are off on what the gospel is and you don't understand the, the basic message of Christianity, spiritual bad news it will continue to prevail upon you for all of eternity, if you would. So let's see how he does with these fundamentals. Of the fundamentals of life. In Matthew chapter 22, you can turn there if you have your Bibles. I want to look at a couple of things about the fundamentals. What it comes down to. We can make life very complicated. We can make following God very complicated. We can make anything complicated. It's not, it's, it's funny. It's not hard to make things complicated. Okay, I've got to stop here for a second. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at the verses that he's going to be getting to, and uh, this isn't about the fundamentals of Christianity. We're in trouble here. Watch, watch whether or not he, he has law and gospel correct. Because it really is not. We just start throwing a bunch of different things into it. And it gets really, really out there sometimes, what we do. But I love the way Jesus taught, and I love the way Jesus brought things down to their simplest form. Math majors out there, you know that when dealing with fractions, you have to bring things down to the lowest common denominator. The lowest common denominator. Why? Because it's simplifying it. It's making it manageable. It's bringing it down to a level of understanding and a level of usability. Okay, listen to the, what he's describing here. He hasn't told you what he's talking about yet. It, unfortunately, okay, this will be a little bit of a spoiler for you. I know, I know, I apologize for for letting the cat out of the bag early. He's talking about the law. He is making the claim that Jesus Christ is going to make the law manageable and understandable. 
Jesus is by no means making the law manageable or uh, at all. Listen carefully to what he says. And Jesus was a master at bringing things down to their lowest common denominator, bringing things down to the simplistic message of the character and person of God. And I don't say simple. Uh, the simplistic message of the person and character of God? Yikes. Um, okay, theologically here, we're, we're dealing with a different category. The simplistic message of the character of God? Do you... Uh, uh, Pastor Shane, do you are you not aware regarding just the the doctrines regarding the characters and attributes of God? That this is complicated, complicated stuff. Okay, almost uh, at times we we really we only get like a small, tiny, remote little fraction regarding the character of God. We barely get it at all, and what we what little we have in Scripture. Well, actually, there's a lot in Scripture, but that amounts to little. We barely understand God and his character and what he's all about. Barely. Barely. You know, it'd be like oysters trying to describe polar bears. We continue. Simplistic in a bad way. I mean, it's a very good thing that it's simple. God has made himself simple. Now, following God is not easy. It's just simple. <laughs> Uh, that was a sentence that makes no sense at all. Following God is not easy, but it's simple. Really? Thought simple and easy were synonyms. We continue. It's not easy, it's simple. Running long distances is very, very hard. It's why I don't do it. It's also very, very boring. I hate running. Hate it. Sprints don't bother me. I, I, played, I, I ran track in, in high school and loved, loved the sprints. But the distances, forget anything over 400, I'm gone. I just I don't want any part of it. Now, I did run cross country. Those six-mile practices, that was torture. But it's simple. It's not complicated to run. Every human being that has the ability to walk has the ability to run. As a matter of fact, those of you that are parents and have kids, as long as there's not something genetically wrong with the spine or with the legs, every kid learns to walk and run almost simultaneously. Some of you think your kids learn to run before they learn to walk. If you have boys, that's especially true. Because it's simple. You just run. And then, you know, we get coaches involved and they make it complicated. Because you got to hold your hands a certain way, and you got to breathe a certain way, and you got to have your no running is not complicated. You just run, but it's hard, which is why most of us don't do it. Most of us don't run distances. Vast majority never run a marathon, never will, because it's hard. But it is simple, and this and Jesus did the same thing. He did the same thing with the person of God, with the principle of God. He brought it down simple so we can understand it, so that we can know how to live it, even though it's hard. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. 
Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, on the one hand, he's being asked by somebody with a Ph.D., lots of knowledge, lots of study, and he's expecting a complicated answer because he's made everything complicated for everybody. And so he's asking this question to try to test and trap Jesus. He's trying to make it complicated, but Jesus does what he does best. And he brings it down and he shows the simplicity of the truth of God. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Simple, but hard. Um, uh, this is not the gospel. This is not the good news. This is not how we're saved. The law shows us our utter depravity and sinfulness. Not that we are just lazy, but that we're dead in trespasses and sins. Let's continue. Let's see what he does with this. Watch how he uses law and gospel. It is hard to put all of our mind, all of our heart, all of our soul into something consistently long term. Yep, it's not only hard, it's just outright practically impossible. Uh, by the way, do you do it, uh, Shane? Using a golf metaphor, by the way, uh, the gospel, the good news, if is if let's pretend for a second uh, that if, using a golf metaphor here, that if salvation were, uh, let's say, a golf metaphor, that if we were required to shoot par or better, uh, you know, with one attempt, we have to shoot par or better in order to be saved on, on, on Beth Page Black. Beth Page Black, by the way, those of you who are not familiar, they just played the U.S. Open. They're one of the toughest golf courses in the world, okay? And uh, let's say salvation was dependent upon your ability to shoot par or better on Beth Page Black. But, by the way, there's more to it than that. Um, you have to do it at night, blindfolded, and the wind and those hurricane winds blowing at seventy miles an hour. Okay, uh, in fact, that being the case, these particular conditions, not even Tiger Woods could shoot around under par, and you don't get a caddy. Uh, you, you're, you, in order to be saved, you've got to uh, you've got to shoot par or better under those conditions. Okay. It's real simple. Just shoot par or better. That's all you got to do. Real simple. But it's not easy. But it's simple. Just shoot par or better. The gospel teaches us that Jesus Christ, under those conditions, shot the perfect round of golf under those conditions. And he is giving us his scorecard as if we're the ones who shot it. Okay, that's the gospel. So listen to what he's saying here. Is this good news or is this bad news? It's real simple. All you have to do is shoot par or better. Real simple. It's not easy. It's hard, but it's real simple. That's the same metaphor that he's, you know, that basically he's trying to make it sound like, okay, so the law, love God and love your neighbor. It's not, it's simple, but it's not easy it's hard to do. It takes perseverance. 
We have to build up for it. We have to keep ourselves focused and we have to work on it. But Jesus did it perfectly for me. Those of you that play golf can understand this. You have to finish your swing. And I'm going to talk a lot more about that in two weeks. But you have to finish your swing. It's very easy to get up there and you get your stance right. You get your grip right. You get your posture right. You get everything ready to go. And then you start the swing and you lose focus. And you think because you've started it right, then everything's good. And you're going to hit that ball and it's going to do what you want to do. But it takes extra concentration to finish that swing and to come through the ball the way you want to come through it so that you get the result you want. The same is true in life. So many of us start out well and start out right. We start out loving God with all that is within us. We start out. You know, uh, really, when do we do that? When did any of us start out loving God with all of our might? Everything, perfectly. Remember, the law demands perfect obedience. A little sin here and a little sin there is not as if that's not a big problem. That's a huge problem. How many sins did Adam commit before humanity fell and he was kicked out of the garden, him and his uh, thieving wife, too, with him? The two of them, they were thieves. They stole God's stuff. They disobeyed God. They stole his fruit. From the tree, he told them not to, to, to not to eat of. So, how how many sins did uh, Adam commit before God kicked him out? Ten, fifteen, hundred, a thousand. I mean, do do we read in Genesis of God going, okay, listen, you know, you've sinned fifteen times, but one more time, and I'm kicking you out of the garden. One. It was one sin fire for God. We start out with zeal and we start out with joy and we start out with energy. It's just hard to sustain. You can't sustain it. You don't sustain it. That's the point of the gospel is the good news that Christ has sustained it for us. Let me do a little bit of reading here. Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, Galatians chapter two. Okay. All right, uh, I'm going to start at verse 11. Okay, by the way, Galatians is a wonderful letter written specifically to a church that had started with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then these Judaizers came in with their law. Oh, it's real simple. You, you, if you, you, you're not really saved, you guys, unless you also have this little cosmetic medical procedure done on uh, a very important member of your body um, entitled circumcision. Don't worry, it'll only hurt for a week, and we don't have things like antiseptics and soap and things like that. Yeah, don't worry, you'll only be sore for a week or two, and after that you won't even notice a difference. But, see, you're not saved unless you're... It's simple, real simple. You, all you got to do is do this. Paul calls down curses and anathemas on those people because they have lost the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Christ has done it for us. He, he loved God with all of his heart. He perfectly loved his neighbor. Never once did Jesus sin. His perfect righteousness, the gospel teaches us, is given to you as if you're the one who lived it, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that is from God, that is by faith. 
We read Galatians chapter 2, uh, verse 11, talking about Peter. And when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, the Apostle Paul writes, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews, they acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? For we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not declared righteous by works of the law, but by faith or through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, that is declared righteous by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. What is the works of the law? Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. The passage that Pastor Shane just read from Matthew 22, verses 34 and forward, that's the law. And Paul says, no one, by works of the law, no one will be justified because by works of the law, no one, no one, no one, not one, not one will be declared righteous. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness could be attained through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law, loving God and loving your neighbor, or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify, that is declare to be righteous, the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you all the nations will be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law. Love God and love neighbor. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous will live by faith. 
But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. You see? We're saved by grace through faith. Paul, later in Galatians 5, go back and read the whole letter. Galatians 5, listen to this. He says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I hate to say it, but Pastor Shane here is, has, is preaching a message of slavery. Slavery to the law. With, with the mistaken notion that Jesus came and just explained it in the way the the simplest way possible and made it really easy, yet he is preaching slavery. Paul says, "Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision; he is obligated to keep the whole law. In fact, I would I'm going to I'm going to add here." Something that's in the same vein, and I think consistent with the teaching here from Galatians 5. Any pastor here who is putting people back under a yoke of slavery is saying, oh, it's just simple. Just love God and love neighbor. Okay? He's basically, uh, I'm sorry, he's obligated to keep the whole law. And he has, he's obligated to keep it perfectly. And anybody who believes this is obligated to keep the law perfectly. Paul says this, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified, that is, declared righteous by the law. You have fallen from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, I, I point all this out here just by way of you know, setting all this up. I want you to listen carefully to what Pastor Shane here in his slavery golf analogy is, uh, metaphor is doing. Listen carefully. And so we think it must be getting complicated, and so we complicate it more by we starting adding things to it that don't need to be added to it. We, we, we put things in there that don't belong and we put requirements that, that aren't really there because the requirements in our mind almost make it easier. But in making it easier, we make it more complicated. Kind of like trying to build a better mousetrap. We might try to find an easier way to build a mousetrap, but we're going to end up making it a whole lot more complicated than a simple mousetrap. That mousetrap is simple, but if you ever caught your fingers in one of them, you know they're hard. So we might try to find an easy way to take care of that so we don't have to deal with that mousetrap and try to build a better mousetrap, but we're going to end up making it a lot more complicated. Before long, we'll have bowling balls rolling through the house. We do that with Christianity. We do that with spiritual things. The Pharisees did that. They took the simple truth of God. God gave the law to prove to people that we need God. 
The law was given to prove to us that we cannot live for God on our own. Okay, stop. Now listen, this sounds close, but it's not at all. The purpose of the law is to show us our sin. It's to reveal sin. Let's do a little more work here. Romans chapter 3. Okay, starting at verse 9. Favorite passage, by the way, of Lutherans. We seem to own Romans 3. Sorry. We continue. Uh, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Remember, the Christian message is pretty simple. Jesus Luke 24, it says, go to all nations and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Okay? So through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This preaching of the law shows us the knowledge of our own wretched and sinful condition. It is what the Holy Spirit uses to literally create that repentance within us. Show us our wretched and miserable condition. But then the gospel brings us alive, gives us faith. Faith is simple, childlike trust. And trust has an object, and that object is in Christ Jesus our King, the one who came to earth and died for your sins and mine. Salvation is free. Now, what Pastor um, Shane here has done is he says that he's he's working in law-gospel categories, kind of, but he says that the law is to show us that we can't do it without God's help. That is not what Romans 3 says. It says that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Not that we can't do it on our own. We can't do it at all. Let me back up the tape and so you can hear that again in context. Here we go. We do that with spiritual things. The Pharisees did that. They took the simple truth of God. God gave the law to prove to people that we need God. The law was given to prove to us that we cannot live for God on our own. That's what the Old Testament is. That's what the book. He is so wrong. Again, we are not saved by you and me working together with God to save ourselves. Uh Uh-uh. Christ has done it all for us. It is the complete and perfect work of Jesus Christ. Christ's life, death, perfect, righteous life is sufficient. We don't add anything to it. God is not interested in rehabbing us. 
He's saving us. Books of Moses, the books of law are, is to prove to us that we cannot get to God on our own. We cannot put enough requirements into it in order to be holy enough and worthy enough to get to God. It's not possible. And God gave that to us to prove to us. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees took that and made it extremely complicated for anybody to get to God, when the truth is it's very simple to get to God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, body, everything that's within you, all of your dreams, all of your aspirations, all of your talents, everything. Give it to God. Simple. You see what he just did? It's real simple. Just love God with all of your heart. Let me back this up again. This is not the gospel, and this is not simple. This is the law, and it's impossible for us to keep it in our sinful condition. We can let me listen to this carefully again. Watch what he does. It's absolutely breathtakingly terrible. Into it in order to be holy enough and worthy enough to get to God. It's not possible. And God gave that to us to prove to us. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees took that and made it extremely complicated for anybody to get to God when the truth is it's very simple to get to God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, body, everything. That it's really simple. Just love the Lord your God with all your heart. Really simple. Just get, get, just go do it. Well, if it's, well, if it's that simple, I'm damned. I, I'm, I'm lost. It's within you. All of your dreams, all of your aspirations, all of your talents, everything. Give it to God. Simple. Give it all to God. Hard to live out and not try to take it back. But then he threw them for a loop. Because he was only asked, what's the greatest commandment? He threw them for a loop. Very quickly, he added, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. You want to sum up the Bible? Love God, love people. There. No, that's summing up the law. That's not summing up the Bible. Summing up the Bible is Christ died for our sins. The good news of Jesus Christ did it perfectly for us because we don't do it. There it is, four words. That's the Bible. The Bible in four, four words. No, it's not. That's the law in four words. And the law does not save us, nor does it even remotely bring us close to God. If anything, the law drives us away from God. Or at least it makes us terrified of him. Because the law thunders against our wretched and sinful condition. Love God, love people. That's what Jesus is saying here. All the law and the prophets, everything that we have here is summed up in love God, love people. And that's the law. And the law doesn't save us. Read Galatians. Let me continue. But now, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from love God and love your neighbor, although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are declared to be righteous by his grace 
as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is a gift whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, not obedience, but by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So then what becomes of our boasting? Well, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? Well, no, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is declared to be righteous by faith apart, apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. Read Romans 3. What this guy has done is he's, quote, giving us the good news of the law, but that's not the good news. Let me again read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 outlines the basic sketch of the gospel. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. It is through the gospel that we're being saved, not through the law. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first and primary importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, and then he appeared to James and to the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The good news is that Christ Jesus, God in human flesh, died for our sins. The Christian gospel is the proclamation of the good news of the free gift of the forgiveness of sins, full and complete pardon, 100% debt canceled. Even if you owe God a trillion and a half dollars, the whole debt is taken care of in Jesus Christ, canceled, paid in full by his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. This man is preaching the law and saying it's simple and saying that this is the summary of, of the Bible. No, it is not. This is the summary of the law. He is putting people under a curse and you cannot draw near to God through the law. You can't because the law will always expose your wretched sinfulness and show you to be what you are, a complete and miserable poor sinner who has nothing of his own righteousness to offer God whatsoever because daily you sin and you sin much. This is not good news that Pastor Shane is preaching. And even though he tried to kind of sort of to touch on the gospel and say, oh, the Pharisees, they made it complicated, but Jesus made it easy because he just said, love God and love your neighbor. No, that's the summary of the law. We are not declared righteous before God by the law, only through the gospel, only through faith. We just make it complicated. 
Because we put all these requirements on everybody in order to love God. We put requirements on people in order to love people. If we want to get our spiritual journey and our walk with God right, we want to get this life right, we have to get the foundation and the fundamentals right. Um, I'm not going to get it right. You can't get it right. Christ got it right for me. He is the fundamental. He is the foundation. Not my law-keeping, but His. It's where it starts. Love God, love people. No, it doesn't start there unless you're preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Then it does begin with the law to show how wretched we are. And we always come back to that. For a golfer, I don't care if it's Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, Sergio Garcia, or who you, or you and I. Just a couple of hackers out there, whatever it is. In order to improve at golf, in order to, to be consistent at golf, it takes the same thing. When you step up to the ball, you do the same thing. The same thing every time. And when you find the fundamentals and you get the fundamental sound, you do the same thing. You always go back to the same thing. Tiger Woods is worth more money than any of us can imagine ever owning or ever having. He wins, on average, one out of every four tournaments that he's a part of. Unprecedented. Absolutely unprecedented over a career. He's on his way to probably going to be crowned. He's already being talked about, but probably going to end up being crowned, if he, if he stays healthy, the greatest golfer of all time. And yet the thing about it is every time Tiger steps up to the ball, he does the same things he did when he was 12 years old. He gets his foundation right. He gets his fundamentals right. He grips the club. He clears his mind to get his swing thought in, and he goes. Uh, this is, again, I agree with you regarding if you were to translate this into the fundamentals of Christianity. But the thing we come back to is not the law. The thing we come back to is the gospel. You preach law and gospel. Uh, Roman, uh, John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Uh, some Jews came up to Jesus, and they said to him, uh, Master, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Do you think Jesus said, uh, well, just love God and, and love your neighbor? No, he's, that's not what he said. John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the singular, the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Christianity is this amazingly, ridiculously too good to be true, but it's not good news that salvation was won for you 100% by Christ for you, and the work of God is to believe. And that belief, that faith, is a gift from God, and from that does flow good works. Not works that are done because of the thunderings of Sinai, love God, love neighbor, but instead done because you are a new creation in Christ. This guy's not preaching the gospel at all. And it's a bad golf metaphor, too. Better than everybody else, yet he does the same thing. It doesn't matter how long you've walked with God. It doesn't matter how long you've served God. It doesn't matter how many degrees you had, how many times you've read the Bible, or how many versions of the Bible you own. Or how many, time, how many versions of the Bible you've actually read that you do own. None of that matters. None of that really matters. It's all good. Please don't get me wrong. That's all good. 
I've stressed many times, and I'll stress again, study is good. Study is important. Knowing the Word of God is important. Going to different versions and using the study tools and using the study guides, that's all good stuff, but it's not what it's about. When it comes down to it in life and walking a spiritual journey with God, we come back to whether we've been in this thing a week, a month, 10 years, or 50 years, we come back to love God, love people. No, if that's what you come back to, you will despair and you will be damned because you do not love God and you do not love people. You are a wretched sinner who cares only about yourself and you are simul justus et peccator, this side of the resurrection. That means you are simultaneously justified. That means declared righteous because of Christ and what he has done and his righteousness that is given to your account by faith. And you are still a sinner in the flesh that you still struggle with your sinful nature. And you will struggle with it until you take your last dying breath. And if the thing you keep coming back to is the law, you will despair. You will you'll either despair or you will become a self-righteous, hypocritical Pharisee who thinks you're somehow pulling it off when you're not. Yeah, I do study God's law. Daily. Daily it shows me my sin, and daily it shows me what a good work is. But I always have to come back to the good news, because the law always accuses, the law always points its finger, the law always says it was never done good enough, it wasn't done with a good enough intention. You sinned there, you blew it there, You thought, this thought killed you there. Always accusing, never comforting, because the law has no comfort to offer. The comfort comes from the gospel, the good news that is received as a gift. So if you keep coming back to the law, you're gone. There is no hope. You can never do enough to satisfy the demands of the law because its demands are for perfection. And even if you could somehow muster up enough strength to live it perfectly for five minutes, it still wouldn't be enough because you've lived a lifetime of sin. That's the foundation. We come back to it every time. Whether Tiger is playing a practice round or he's playing the Masters, he does the same thing. He comes back to it every time. And spiritually, we have to do the same thing. We always have to come back to love God, love people. Jesus said it's the greatest commandment. And then he said, and the second is like it. Now, I'm not an English major. English wasn't necessarily my best subject in school. But I understand... Apparently, theology wasn't either. ...that when the word like is used in this context, and it says something is like it, it's pretty much putting them on equal footing. It's basically saying they're equal. They have the same function. They, 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 they do the same things. They're, they're, it's bringing them together. It's a common comparison of being the same thing. And so he says the second is like it. So we can't just love God and hate people. We can't love God and despise people. We can't love God and barely tolerate people. We can't love God and ignore people. We can't love God and write people off and still think we've got our spiritual journey right. 
Uh, Shane, if you were honest with yourself, then you ain't got your spiritual journey right at all. Because you do not perfectly love God or your or your neighbor. You got it wrong every single day of your existence. You are a wretched sinner. So what makes you think you have any kind of spiritual walk at all with God that matters since you're basing it on love God and love neighbor? You don't do it. And there's a lot of people right now that are trying to do it that way. Honestly, that is the sin of the Pharisees. That is the sin of the Pharisees. They loved God, or at least they appeared to. They did all the things right for God, but they despised people. No, the sin of the Pharisees was self-righteousness and lack of trust in Christ. And tolerated them at best. Now, not all. There were some godly Pharisees. There were some good men that, that were that were in that group called Pharisees. But the vast majority of the ones we read about in Scripture, they didn't get this right. And so they were called hypocrites and whitewashed tombs and broods of vipers and other things that aren't very nice. They were called those things because they were sinners and they thought they were righteous because they thought they were pulling the law off. You know, Luke chapter 16, probably, uh, is it 18? Hang on a second here. Pulling this up in my Bible to make sure uh, I got this. Yeah, here we go. Uh, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Again, the sin of the Pharisees is that they trusted in themselves, in their own righteousness. Yet they were wrecked wretched sinners. They were whitewashed sepulchers. They looked good on the outside because they can make other people think that they were righteous, but they weren't. Listen to this parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. That's a guy, the guy who thought he was righteous and he trusted in himself. And the other was a tax collector. Okay. Uh, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. Thank you. God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Uh, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he only beat his breast, saying, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that the tax collector went out to his house justified, that is, declared righteous, rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, Jesus told this parable to those who trusted in themselves and that they were righteous. That's the sin of the Pharisees, that they believed that they were keeping the law when they weren't. To hear God's voice, we must get better at the basics. We must get the basics down in our life. No, no, no. Not get them down. The law demands perfection. 
and we'll begin to hear God's voice. I know some of you are struggling. You want to hear God's voice. And see, that's what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees kept asking, show us God, show us God, show us God. And Jesus was saying, if you know me, you know God. Jesus was saying, if you've watched me, if you've observed me, you're seeing God. But they didn't get it. They didn't understand it because they kept trying to make it complicated. And Jesus was making it simple. And they were trying to... No, Jesus was fulfilling the law. He was the promised one who would propitiate our sins. Trying to make God's voice this real complicated, this, this, this out there kind of thing that only a few can get. And Jesus was saying, no, God's voice is for everybody. I am the good shepherd and you are my sheep and the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. You will hear me speak. If you want to hear the voice of God, you've got to get back to the fundamentals, the basics. Whoa, is that dangerous? You want to hear the voice of God, then you just need to love God and love it. This is all law. This is just damnable law. There is no gospel here at all. You are sending people to hell, Pastor Shane. Love God, love people. Yeah, and you don't. Love God, love people. As if that's simple. That's what it's about. That's what it comes down to. No, it's about faith and trust in the promises of Christ and what he has done for us. You don't have to turn there, but in John 15, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. He's talking about the love he has for the Father and the Father has for him and then the love he has for his disciples and for people. And he lived it out. He gave his life. Verse 17. What exactly did he give his life for again? Seriously. What does, what does the role of Jesus' death on the cross amount to if it's up to me to love God and love other people. And that therefore, then I can hear the voice of God because then I've earned it. Notice the earning talk. If you want to hear God's voice, then you need to get the fundamentals right. You need to make, you need to, you need to. What exactly was Jesus hanging dead on the cross for there, uh, Pastor Shane? This is my command. Love each other. It's not an option, yet we act like it is. I completely agree, but you and I don't do it. We act like loving each other is an option. We act like loving people is an option. We'd rather judge. We'd rather judge people because it makes us feel better about ourselves. We'd rather look down on people. We'd rather find all the things that are wrong with people. Uh, let's make this real easy. Uh, Shane, um, I am a dirty, rotten, miserable sinner according to God's law. Don't even come close. So as far as judging other people, uh, really the law kind of does that all for us. When we're honest about the law and our standing before God as a result of the law, then we know that we don't have anything to offer God whatsoever in our own righteousness. Let me read another passage to you. Philippians chapter 3, one of my favorite passages. Paul warning about the hypocrites, the those who are adding the law to the gospel. 
the Pharisees, those who were self-righteous, trusting in themselves and their righteousness, uh, John, uh, Luke chapter 18 describes. It, uh, Paul says this. He says, look out for those dogs. Look out for the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. Those would be the circumcision guys. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But... Whatever gain I had, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, that's his own righteousness, and I count them as rubbish, trash, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You see, Paul wasn't looking to have a righteousness of his own. He did the Pharisee thing. He was self-righteous. And he considers all of his self-righteous righteousness as trash. That he might have the righteousness of Christ imputed to him, given to him, as if he's the one who lived it. Hmm. And love them. Because loving somebody is gritty, and it's dirty, and it means we have to get involved. It means we have to give of ourselves. It means we have to be vulnerable. And sometimes it hurts. It hurts. And so we'd rather just sit back and judge. And if not judge, definitely ignore. Just ignore. Just write them out. Just you know, uh, pa Pastor Shane, I just have a question. Do you, uh, do you love enough? Do you do enough? Uh, do you do this perfectly? Because that's what the law demands. You you write people out and you don't obey God perfectly. How do you know if you've done enough? Does God grade on a curve? Just not even have them there. Let me just focus on what's in front of me and what I want to do. But Jesus said, no, this command I give, love each other. Up in verse 15, Jesus said, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my Father I have made known to you. And I just point that out to say that Jesus wants you to hear his voice. He wants you to hear his voice. He wants you to hear his voice. I agree. And his voice says, you are forgiven in me. I have died for your sins, all of them. I declare you righteous, not by works of the law, but by simple childlike trust in this good news. And he's speaking to you every day. 
He's speaking every day. And the reason why most of us don't hear God speak to us every day is because we've allowed the noise and the complications and the voices and all of the distractions of life to come in and drown out his voice because we've forgotten the fundamentals of love God, love people. And if we'll get the fundamentals right, love God, love people, then we'll begin to get everything else right. If, if, if we get the fundamentals right, then that's law talk and we'll never get it right, ever. Because the law demands perfect obedience. Good luck getting those fundamentals right. And we'll start to hear God in unprecedented ways. No, we don't hear God because we get the fundamentals right. We hear God because we receive the gospel and we believe by faith. Read Galatians 2. So Jesus was talking about in Matthew 6.33 in the Sermon on the Mount. When he said to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these... Uh, Whose righteousness? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's the righteousness that is by faith. That's Christ's righteousness that is given to us by faith as a gift. Other things will be added to you as well. If we'll get this right, everything else will start to come together then nothing will ever come together because we don't get it right. If you're basing our getting it right on the law, you know, something simple like, you know, just love God and, you know, love your neighbor. That's simple. Just, you'll never, that's the law. You'll never get it right. You don't get it right this side of the resurrection. Everything else will be added. The obedience, the holiness, the, the, the guidance, the provision, the healing, the joy, the peace, all of those other things will come in as a result of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Love God, love people. No, his righteousness is the perfect righteousness of Christ, not me loving God and loving people. That's the law. That's it. Well, that's it. I'm damned. So are you. No one's saved. We're all doomed. It really is that simple. As if loving God and loving people is simple. Give me a break. But it's as hard as can be. There's nothing in life harder. There's nothing in life that's harder to do. Yeah, and yeah, oh man. Than to simply love God, love people. It's the hardest undertaking man has. It's the hardest thing. And yet what's funny is, is that those who have faith... God is the one who works through the Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love, patience, joy, peace, all that stuff. Those are fruits of the Holy Spirit. You're talking about raw, naked obedience, pharisaical self-righteousness, not the righteousness that is by faith in Christ, and the obedience that comes about as a fruit of faith through the working of the Holy Spirit. Two completely different things. There is. There's a recruitment speech for you. But it's true. Simple, but hard. Love God, love people. It's the basics. It's the foundation. Before we can look at anything else, we have to be there. To hear God's voice, get the basics right. Get the foundations right. Get the fundamentals right. Love God, love people. Every head bowed, every eye closed.
We've had one altar time this morning where some of you have responded and God worked in your life. And God's still working. He's still speaking. So before we dismiss today, I want to give an opportunity to respond in two ways. The first would be for the one or two or whoever that maybe you're struggling with the love God part. (laughs) Just one or two people in your congregation. Everybody who is hearing your voice not only struggles but fails miserably at the love God, love people thing. Maybe you've been in a place where you're not sure he exists or you've been in a place you're not sure he loves you. You've been in a place where you just... Yeah, you know what's funny is is that how am I supposed to be convinced that God loves me if all he's doing is making demands on me that I can't keep and I don't keep? And he's basically saying, if you want to hear my voice, then you need to get this right. And I don't ever. So I'll never earn the right to hear God's voice. And you're, you're trying to convince me that this God loves me? Are you sure? Just not sure. Maybe you've just been unaware and you've just been doing things your way, living life according to you. Yeah, that's what we all do by nature, Shane. You too. But today you know you need to make a change and you need to start a journey, a life of loving God. And letting him love you the way he wants to. Of revealing his love and his... Uh, cue sappy music. No gospel, by the way. None whatsoever. No no real mention of real sin. No mention whatsoever of redemption in Christ. Somehow this is supposed to be a loving God. I'm not so sure. I won't have anything to do with this God. His voice. And showing himself to you. If that's you and you need to begin that journey fresh, new. Yeah, start over because you failed it miserably. So, you know, just give it a good college try and try again harder. Maybe you'll get it this time after failing at it every single day of your existence. Or just again. No one's looking around. I want you to raise your hand real quick. I'm going to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm just going to pray for you. You're struggling with the love God part of this and you want to make a change. Because you realize his love for you. I'm going to hold in this moment for just a second. Where was the love of God really mentioned at all in this? Again, what did Christ do on the... What was he doing there? In your theology, Shane, what exactly did Christ do? Because I know God is speaking to somebody. I still have that sense that I had earlier that God is drawing somebody right now who's fighting him. That would be all of us. And by the way, I'm the one who preached the gospel, not you. And I don't want you to miss your moments. I don't want you to miss this opportunity. To do what? To get on a rat wheel? Miss the opportunity to beat your head against a brick wall? To bash your brains in on the, on the law of God, which will only thunder at you and accuse you and cannot save you? He's calling you to surrender. Right. And if you just will, you will be amazed. 
really. Where, where, where's the surrender talk in the scripture, by the way? The second part, second opportunity to respond is the obvious. But more than just you're struggling with loving people, you find yourself ignoring or judging, dismissing whatever. Yeah, like you do, Shane. You do this every day. But you realize today you've complicated life in ways you don't need to. You've complicated your spiritual journey. Oh, no, I've complicated it. As if somehow reducing it down to love God and love neighbor is going to make it easier. Give me a break. Now, I'm not saying the Bible studies and reading books and all of those things are complications. No, complications are when we make the fundamentals about more than loving God, loving people. The fundamental is Christ died for our sins. Jesus is the fundamental. He's the missing thing in this, quote, Christian sermon. Unquote. Which it ain't. Folks, this is a perfect example of how if you do not understand that Christ and him crucified for our sins is the center and substance of the scriptures, then the Bible remains a completely closed book. You gravitate towards the law naturally and you set up this cosmic quid pro quo. That means this for that in Latin, by the way. And basically you, you create you, – you basically, based on your righteousness, you think that God then owes you something. If you want to hear the voice of God, then you need to get the fundamentals right. So God is sitting up in heaven going, oh, I hope they get the fundamentals right. Just like a golf swing, they need to practice the fundamentals. And if they get the fundamentals right, then, then I will speak to them. If that's the case, then God has nothing to say to nobody ever, period. Because none of us ever, ever, ever gets the fundamentals right. And, and it's not like God's coming alongside of us and saying, hey, let me help you. I see that you're struggling to get the law thing right. But that's okay. I'll teach you how to do it. No, the good news is that Christ did it for us, for you. And you realize you've complicated that. And you're not living the simple life of faith that God has called you to. Really? Simple life of faith? You're equating keeping God's law as faith. You have no idea, sir, that you are completely botching the biblical categories of law and gospel, works righteousness versus faith. They, the two are not synonymous. And maybe it's played out that you're not loving people the way you should. So I guess in, in reality, this response may be for two groups or a combination. Where is the gospel and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, sir? But if that's you today and you realize you're struggling with the fundamentals, you've made it more complicated or you're not loving people the way you should. And God is speaking to you about that. No one's looking around. Yeah, God is speaking to us. He's pointing his finger at us and saying, you are in deep yogurt, dude. You don't keep the law perfectly, and you know that I'm a holy and righteous God who demands perfection, and you ain't even close. That's what the law does. You ever read the story of Mount Sinai? I want you to raise your hand so I can pray for you. And I can pray with you. I see a hand. 
and another. Thank you. You can put it down. God is calling you back to simple faith. And faith is trust. It is not obedience to loving God and loving neighbor. That obedience to loving God and loving neighbor, as feeble and weak as it is in the Christian life, is a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit wrought in us because we are raised from the dead spiritually and given faith as a gift. It is a fruit of faith. He's not even, he's equating law keeping with faith. That's not what the scriptures teach. Father, we give you honor today. If you were giving God the Father honor, then you would be preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins and not teaching people to make themselves right with God because they can't. That's why Christ came. We give you glory. No, you don't because you've robbed Christ of his glory. You've robbed Christ of his glory, of his perfect righteousness and the gift of salvation won by him and have put the onus on us. And and basically, if I'm the one who loves God and loves my neighbor perfectly, and I'm the one who earns the right to hear the voice of God, I'm the one who's getting the glory, not Christ or God. And we thank you. God, I thank you for what you were doing just a moment ago here at the front. Uh, I don't think God was doing anything there. In hearts and in lives, in families. Lord, you're speaking, you're drawing, you're healing, you're calling. God, I also thank you that you have not made it complicated to follow you. I thank you that you have not put all of these requirements upon us. As if loving God and loving neighbor is not a requirement. But you truly do say we can come to you just as we are. And once we come to you, we just love you and love your people. Oh, man. where There is no gospel here. Help us to live out the simplicity of that faith. The simplicity of that... There's nothing simple about the, quote, faith that you're describing. Because it isn't faith, it's works righteousness. That statement, love God, love people. Help us to live it out with boldness and with authority and by your spirit. Completely Christless. Crossless. Father, for the one or the two that's struggling this morning. and One or two that's struggling. Give me a break. And is to this point has not answered your call, but they're still, the the war is raging inside their heart. You know what's happening? You're you're terrifying them with the law, and you're not giving them the gospel? Oh my goodness. This is like people coming in out of the desert, dying of thirst, and you refuse to give them a drink of water. This is spiritual cruelty and abuse. Father, I pray they will have another opportunity. And I pray that they will say yes, and that will be sooner rather than later. So they don't miss out on what you have for them now. 
And for these that are struggling with the fundamental... Oh, so God has stuff for them that he wants to give them, but they're going to miss out unless they make this decision to love God and love... Fundamentals, the foundations of their faith and their walk with you. Maybe they, they realize they spend more time judging people or ignoring people or dismissing people or finding the negative in people rather than loving them. Well, I'm loving you enough to tell you, Shane, you are you are in deep trouble. You do not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are a wretched sinner who does not even come close to loving God and loving other people. As a result of it, you have earned God's wrath. But there is another word in Scripture, and it's not the message of the law. It is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for your sins. All of them. Repent of your self-righteousness. Repent of these wicked works that you are putting your trust in. And believe this good news that Christ died for you. And that you do not have to strive to earn it. That Christ has done it for you perfectly. Repent and believe the gospel. God, bring the strength and the wherewithal, the fortitude to truly love people. And help us to live it out, not just a moment, not just because of a decision or at the moment of decision, but every day to love you with all of our heart, all of our strength, our soul, our mind, all that we have, all that we are. All and I don't and you don't. All that we will be. And you don't and you never will and you won't decide of the... Uh, As we go from here, let us walk in your protection, your provision, knowing your presence each step of the way. In the marvelous name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Oh, man. Wow. 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 Complete confusion of law and gospel. That is exactly the kind of preaching that sends people to hell. Why? Because it throws them back on themselves, has to make them put together another college try so that they can do the simple thing <coughs> of loving God and loving neighbor. And yet scripture is so clear. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law and Christ summarizes the law as love God and love neighbor. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, but through the law comes knowledge of sin. So he preached a sermon that exposed people to their sin and showed them the knowledge of their sin. And he did not even give them the biblical remedy, which is Christ crucified for our sins. Not some of them, all of them. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ died for you. 
He he died for all of your sins. Every single day that goes by that you do not love God with all, all, all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself perfectly, you are sinning against God. You are sinning against his law, sinning against his holiness, sinning against his character. You are sinning against the very being that spoke you into existence. You are sinning against the very being that set the heavens in the sky, that lit up the stars in the sky, that set the galaxies spinning in space. The god of quasars and quarks and galaxies, and suns, and moons, and planets, and asteroids, and nebula. He spoke them into existence. He said, let there be light, and there was light. That God, the very God who made our first parents, Adam and Eve, who made us in his likeness, who we, whom we have rebelled against, through our idolatries, through our disrespect of our parents, through our adulteries, through our theft, through our covetousness, through our gossip, through all of our wretched and sinfulness. All of these things prove that we do not love God. That's what the law does. And that's not the last word. God's law is not the last word. And the gospel is not just try harder. Just get the fundamentals down. You know, practice like, you know, practicing at golf and you'll get good at it. And then God will honor that. No. The good news is that in Jesus Christ, all of the perfect requirements of the law and its demands were met in Christ. He was without sin for you. You can stand before God, even if you, even if you've aborted your child, even if you've engaged in the act of homosexuality, even if you are an adulterer, even if you are a gossip, a thief, a liar, even if you've been a drunk, a prostitute. All of these sins are atoned for in Christ. Salvation is a gift. God knows that you haven't loved him with your whole heart. And you won't. This side of heaven. But there's more at work here. Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law and through the preaching of the gospel gives you faith, raises you from the dead and begins to produce fruit in keeping and repentance in your life. It won't be perfect this side of the resurrection. Not even close. But there's a day coming. It's called the last day. The last day when Christ returns we are resurrected not into sinful mortal bodies that sin and are subject to death and decay, 
but we are resurrected to life eternal with Christ. An eternity without sin. An eternity of loving God and loving a neighbor perfectly. Of everything being restored to what it was before the fall because of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. This is the gospel. This is the good news. It is a crime. It is a high crime of treason against Jesus Christ for a man to stand in a Christian pulpit and preach only the law and you making it right with God by your own effort. Only a satanic lackey, a hireling, who doesn't understand his own his own sinful condition before God would dare to make you be responsible for fixing things with God and just saying, just love God and love neighbor. No. The final word is Christ and him crucified for our sins. It is the gospel. It is the forgiveness of sins. It's free, and it doesn't depend upon you. It depends upon Christ, and he's already done it all for you. Believe this good news and repent of your wickedness. Well, folks, sadly, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Got a little exercise today. I get, it's kind of been in the vein of the stuff I've been working on and writing about. I need to remind you that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. In order for us to continue to get out the message of the gospel, to dish up a daily dose of biblical discernment, and for this message to reach the people that it does around the world, we need your help. We need your financial support. And you can support us by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. That allows you to uh, get your gift in securely uh, using a secure online credit card processing. Or if you'd like to do it the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, tomorrow is our anniversary. <laughs> One year. One year, Pirate Christian Radio. That's pretty pretty exciting. Something to rejoice about. Well, until then, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's program, you can do so at fighting uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or ask to be my friend on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter and receive our subversive microblogging tweets. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God bless you. 